In the early light of a spring morning during the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, a small man on a large horse was galloping through the dense woodland beside the Tennessee River. The air was charged with the sound of heavy gunfire, sharpshooting, haphazard volleys, and the boom of artillery firing salvos at point-blank range. The small man was Ulysses Grant, the date, April 6, 1862, and the noise, the opening exchanges of the Battle of Shiloh. Ahead raged an encounter between the Union and Confederate forces that had caught Grant by surprise and cast his army into disorder. Hundreds of the Northerners had already found the experience of close order, close-range firing too much for their manhood and were streaming back to safety under the high banks of the Tennessee River. Grant heeded the cries for ammunition first. He knew that the Southerners, always strapped for supplies, could win a firefight only as a result of bad Northern management of their own superior resources. Grant then turned his horse to ride along his front and survey its state. He found confusion that threatened collapse. Even the best of Grant's subordinates were in trouble. Sherman had had a horse shot from under him and suffered a wound in his hand. Elsewhere, runaways were pressing for shelter into an ever tighter mass under the high bank. There would be 5,000 there by mid-afternoon, perhaps a fifth of Grant's army, many weaponless, and none with any stomach for more fighting. Dark was falling. Cold sheets of rain had begun to sweep the forest. The battlefield was filled with shivering, shelterless soldiers as anxious for a bite of hot food as they were for an end to the ceaseless bursts of firing which had driven them from one nameless spot to another throughout that awful day. All this is from John Keegan's wonderful book, The Mask of Command, and I've cut quite a lot from Keegan's wonderful prose. My excerpt greatly understates the full horror of men still largely untrained encountering a full day of combat at very close range to their enemy. But in Keegan's book, we also learn of some other developments during the same day that gave Grant confidence. He knew that a lot of the attacking Confederates were dead or wounded from the first day's push, that all of them were exhausted and probably very low on ammunition. Grant had reinforcements streaming in. In fact, that's why the Confederates had attacked, to defeat Grant before a second Union army could join up but tonight those reinforcements were arriving. Also, Grant knew his artillery and gunboats controlled the riverbank. Let's go back now to Keegan's writing. Later that night, Sherman found Grant standing under a dripping tree, coat collar around his ears, cigar clenched between his teeth. Sherman had come to speak of retreat. Some wise and sudden instinct prompted him otherwise. Well, Grant, he said, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? Grant took a pull on his cigar, the glow illuminating his tight, neat, determined features. Yes, said Grant, 
Yes. Lick him tomorrow, though. So he did. The greatest general of the American Civil War had begun his ascent from obscurity. That's the end of Keegan's writing. Now, more than a few listeners looking back over the last year may be thinking, we've had the devil's own day. Can you also lean into the rain and say, as Grant did, lick him tomorrow, though? We know what facts gave Grant confidence. What things should give you confidence looking forward? This podcast draws on the work of Dr. Joel Wade and the field of positive psychology. From their studies, we know that the exercise of gratitude can be deeply empowering. For example, if we think about people who have helped us at pivotal points in our lives, if we think about people who created change in the world that made our lives better, if we reflect on efforts we have made to bring about the things that are going well in our lives. As Joel Wade likes to say, this is like the Apollo 13 movie when Gene Krantz at Houston Control asks, what are the things on the spacecraft that are working? His point was, let's use that as a starting place for finding solutions. Gratitude helps us move into that mindset. After gratitude, it helps to focus on what we can control or influence. Let's go back to Shiloh. A different northern general, Don Carlos Buell, wasted much of the early battle chastening the stragglers who had fled to the riverbank. Grant, on the other hand, found the troops who were fighting and made sure they had ammunition. There's a lot of news right now that could be quite disturbing if you dwell on it. But focus on disturbing news is like yelling at the panic-stricken soldiers hiding on the riverbank. It does no good. Look at the opposite. Where can we build on what is working? Like Grant making sure the fighters in his army got ammunition. Let's think about the things we can control and the things that will influence our outcomes. For example, do I have a deep sense of self-agency? Meaning, do I understand that my effectiveness and happiness will depend mainly on choices I make versus depending mainly on someone else to rescue me? And is that mindset guiding most of my conduct? Am I introspective about what I'm really good at or even uniquely good at and where that skill is valuable? That kind of thinking helps me understand where I can do the most good and be rewarded for doing good at my company, in my family, in my civic life, anywhere? Am I approaching all my personal interactions with integrity and empathy? I can't control how people react to me, but I can absolutely control whether I approach them with honesty, with a focus on reality, and a sense of us solving problems together. And while I can't control how people react to me, these habits maximize the chances that they will react positively. Now think about the things we just agreed we can control. If we master those mindsets and make them habit, that's a lot. Most people finish their existence on Earth without getting that far. Let's go back to the history classroom again, back to the Civil War and what came afterward. Winston Churchill was an avid student of American history. He knew, from the sheer terribleness of the suffering in the Civil War, 
that Americans were a profoundly tough people. Whereas Hitler mistakenly discounted the potential role of America because he thought Americans were soft, consumed with making movies and consumer goods. That same group that Hitler discounted ended up becoming what we later called the greatest generation. But that greatest generation had the same DNA we have. Their rise was a reaction to horrific challenges, a depression and dust bowl that lasted many years, driving people to fanaticism at both ends of the political spectrum. The greatest generation overcame those disasters and populist threats to our constitutional democracy and then won the greatest war in human history. And by the way, the greatest generation didn't see themselves as a greatest generation. They were just countless individuals finding ways to make the most of the circumstances in front of them. Just as Grant was surprised by the Confederates at Shiloh, we've been surprised by a pandemic and by our national unreadiness for it. I've been surprised by how quickly our country saw widespread political violence and how slowly, how timidly, the more rational people who understand the essence of our civic covenant have responded to that. This is a big deal. But it's smaller than some of the crises people before us have faced down in our past. Will we use good habits to understand and deploy our individual strengths? Can another greatest generation emerge? What are you going to do 